0: Service. Now to look at the word. Um, Last week, I talked about a period of of deep pain and loss in the life of Jacob. We talked about how that period of pain and loss impacted his role as an heir to the promises that God had made to his grandfather, Abraham. You might recall, if you were here last week, one of the losses that he experienced that we discussed was uh, the death of his second wife, Rachel with whom he was in deep, deep romantic love with Rachel. You might recall that Rachel died in childbirth, and she left behind a baby boy that Jacob named Benjamin. Benjamin would be Jacob's final child. Uh, Jacob was already fairly old when Benjamin was born. Benjamin, you might recall, was much, much younger than his other siblings by a fairly wide margin. And actually, the next youngest in Jacob's family was, was Joseph, who was also quite a bit farther behind the other kids. So uh, this, is, this is really kind of a change of life baby that Jacob had and indeed the birth of Benjamin did change Jacob's life uh, as, as we'll see today. Uh, I didn't wanna go back to the family tree that I had shown you a couple of weeks back because well frankly the tree is just getting too big. Uh, It's getting big and it's getting complicated, but I did want to put a list. This is helpful, I think, just to see. Um, On the screens, you'll see a list of the 12 sons. That Jacob had. We know he had at least one daughter in addition to these 12 boys. There may be more. The Bible was silent about them. But these are Jacob's 12 sons. And in order of age, we have them. First Reuben, then Simeon, then Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and then finally little baby Benjamin as the last one of the 12 boys that Jacob had. Uh, Now remember, Jacob himself, the dad of this family, Jacob grew up in a family of just four. His family had mom and dad, and then the twin boys, Jacob and Esau. I'm going to keep my water close by because it's a dry mouth morning for me. Remember that in the family that Jacob grew up in, Uh, it, it was kind of a dysfunctional dynamic for them because in that little family of four, dad had his favorite son. Esau and mom had her favorite son Jacob, and so we had two units of two that that often kind of played off against each other. We would call it a dysfunctional family for sure. Uh, Now, as a single dad, the Bible tells us that Jacob actually created the same kind of dysfunction in his own household. Look at that list of 12 sons that he had, the Bible says that Jacob was not shy at all about letting it be known that he had a favorite, and his favorite was Joseph. My parents had a favorite as well. It was me, um, for reasons that I think are fairly apparent. (laughs) Yeah. I'll just let that one sit there for a while. (laughs) Now, Jacob had a favorite, and Jacob's favorite was Joseph. Now, we left off last week in Genesis chapter, I believe it was chapter 37. The next 10 chapters of the book of Genesis basically focus on the life of Joseph, Jacob's son Joseph, who was the favorite child in his family. Uh, chances are that you're familiar with at least some of the Joseph stories. We're not gonna read them, we're gonna do a great big skip today. But I just wanna make sure that you recognize kind of context where we are in this story. Chances are excellent that you know some of the Joseph stories. This is the Joseph whose, whose father Jacob uh, gave him a very special coat. A coat, as the Bible says, of many colors, or as Donny Osmond said, the amazing technicolor dream coat okay that's the coat that that Joseph had we know that Joseph as a young boy uh, was a dreamer and he kind of let his mouth run off in front of his brothers sometimes we know that his brothers were very jealous of him they didn't like him he was kind of a little twerp and so they came up with a plan to kill him Uh, later they modified their plan they said let's let's not kill him um, let's sell him into slavery. And they actually did that. The, the other 11 boys on the screen sold Joseph into slavery and then went back and told Jacob that he had been killed by wild animals. So, you know, that made for a really awkward Thanksgiving that year. Uh, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a real fun day around the family table. Uh, we know from the Bible that, that Jacob, I'm sorry, Joseph as a slave made it all the way to Egypt Uh, where he lived as a slave for a while, where he was imprisoned for a while for a crime he didn't commit. Um, But we know that at the lowest of the lows, Joseph was recognized for his miraculous ability to interpret dreams. Uh, And because of that, he began to rise through the ranks of Egyptian society until finally he became the highest ranking official in the Pharaoh's court. Uh, It's pretty similar, actually, for those of you that have been with us for a while. Uh, Several months ago, we followed the story of Daniel, right? Very similar to Daniel's story, where he's kind of sold into slavery in another society and ends up lowest of the low, but then ends up highest of the high, the highest-ranking official in the king's court, uh, in part because of the recognition that he had this miraculous ability to interpret dreams. Very, very similar story. Now, part of Joseph's responsibility in Egypt was he had to oversee the department of the agriculture. And his wise management of that department made Egypt the wealthiest nation in the known world, in the ancient Near East. A famine struck the land. We've seen that happen a few times in the book of Genesis. And because Joseph had been managing the agricultural resources of Egypt... Egypt was the only nation that had storehouses of food when the famine struck. Everybody else was caught with no storehouses of food. And so Egypt was able to buy up land using their food. They were able to maintain their power. They became the regional superpower. Uh, They just excelled and succeeded because of Joseph's wisdom in management. Now, what that famine also meant is that everyone in the region, everyone in the Near East, Uh, was starving, and they all knew that the only place you could actually get food was Egypt. And so all of these refugees start flooding into Egypt looking for food. And who do you imagine was with some of those refugees? Well, it it was Jacob, now a very, very old man, and his remaining 11 sons. They make their way to Egypt looking for food. In the book of Genesis, you can read about how Joseph recognizes them Um, and eventually reveals his identity, Uh, all is forgiven. He arranges for them to live in Egypt, to bring all of their flocks. They get uh, grazing rights in a particular area of land, and they can continue to flourish in their business. All is forgiven, and there's kind of this, this restoration of the family. You might recall the famous line from the book of Genesis where Joseph says to his brothers, hey, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And, and so there's this, this restoration here. How did I do? That was 10 chapters of the book of Genesis. I did that in just a handful of minutes. Pretty good, right? What I want to highlight here is that as we get to the end of that part of the story, let's think about this entire experience through the, through the eyes or from the perspective of Jacob. Jacob had a favorite son, Joseph. And he lost touch with him. He actually believed Joseph was dead when Joseph was just a young man. The Bible actually puts him at 17 years old when Jacob lost him. And for years and years and years, he believed that his son was dead. And then the surprise of his life happens many, many years later when he realizes that Joseph, in fact, is alive and very, very well living in Egypt. And that's how it comes to pass that Don't try to drink and talk at the same time. (laughs) There's two pipes in there and one is for water and one is for talking and they're not to be mixed up. That's how it comes to pass that in Genesis chapter 48, which is where we are going to pick up today. Jacob, now very, very advanced in age, sits down with Joseph for the first time in many, many years. And not only does he see Joseph, but he meets his two grandsons. He meets his two grandsons he didn't even know he had. Joseph says to, to Jacob, he's like, Dad, I've got two little boys and I want you to meet them. And that's the scene we're gonna peek into here. It's Genesis chapter 48, verse eight. It said, then Jacob looked over at the two boys. Are these your sons? He asked. Yes, Joseph told him. These are the sons that God has given me here in Egypt. And Jacob, uh, would you forgive me if I imagined it with tears in his eyes? Jacob said, bring them closer to me so that I can bless them. Boy, does that mean a lot coming from Jacob with all of his stories about blessings through the course of his life. Bring those boys to me so that I can bless them. Jacob was half blind because of his age and he could hardly see. So Joseph brought the boys close to him and Jacob kissed and embraced them. And then Jacob said to Joseph, I never thought I would see your face again, but now God has let me see your children too. Man, some people say the Old Testament is impersonal and heartless and boring. Where are they reading? Tell me that's not some of the most heart-wrenching dialogue you have ever read. We've got more than just a couple grandmas and grandpas in the room today. Can you imagine what that moment was like for Jacob? I thought you were dead. And he says, not only am I alive, I want you to meet my boys. I want you to meet your grandsons. Mm. As we read on we begin to get the idea that Jacob recognizes that his time on earth is drawing short. He calls all 12 of his sons together so that he can give each one of them a blessing. Now remember, this is an important tradition. We've seen this in the story of this family before, but we've seen it go wrong, haven't we? Jacob's own dad wanted to bless him. His sons, except for he didn't want to bless all of them. He he tried to bless Esau in secret, and that got them all into a whole bunch of trouble. Jacob here is you know, he's not perfect. He's playing favorites, we know that. But this is the last moment, and he says, No, I I want I want all my boys together. And so he gathers all of his sons together, and he says this. I'm skipping ahead now to Genesis chapter 49, beginning in verse twenty-eight. These are the twelve tribes of Israel. And this is what their father said as he told his sons goodbye. He blessed each one of them with an appropriate message. Then Jacob instructed them, Soon I will die and join my ancestors. Bury me with my father and my grandfather in the cave of the field of Ephron the Hittite. There Abraham and his wife Sarah are buried. There Isaac and his wife Rebekah are buried. And there I buried my wife Leah." It is the plot of land and the cave that my grandfather Abraham bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished this charge to his sons, he drew his feet into the bed, he breathed his last, and he joined his ancestors in death. And that's the end of the story of Jacob. I mentioned last week that it's tough to find a good stopping point in the story of this family. We've followed them for three complete generations now, right, We Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But but four, if you count Joseph, we kind of skipped over his life story. Um, Five, if you count the fact that we've got the two little boys now. Um, But the stories of this family are gonna continue far beyond this. This is not a story of merely five generations. Uh, As we just read, these 12 brothers, these 12 boys become the ancestral heads of the 12 tribes that make up the nation of Israel. And so the rest of the Old Testament, in large part, is the story of their heirs. It's the story of the heirs of the promises that God made to Abraham. It's the story of this family as it goes forward from this point. But for us... I'm not going to preach through the entire Old Testament. Uh, I think this is as good a stopping point in the story as we can find. Uh, Jacob has passed away. Now, if I'm not saying we're going to do it, but if you were to just peek ahead, if you were to turn one more page in your Bible, you would see Genesis chapter 50, which is the last chapter in the book of Genesis. And what you would read there is the story of Jacob's funeral procession. He died in Egypt, far away from home, but he told his sons with his last breath, he said, I want you to take my body back home to be buried in the ancestral burial grounds with grandma and grandpa, with mom and dad, and where Leah already waits for me. Okay? He said, I want to be buried there. In Genesis chapter 50, we're going to see the Egyptians give him a funeral with great honor because of their respect for his son, Joseph we're going to see this funeral procession that takes him all the way from Egypt back to Canaan, where he's from. It reminds me a little bit, just in American history, of the funeral procession, the train that took Abraham Lincoln's body from Washington, D.C., back here to Springfield, Illinois. All the stops it makes along the way, the people take notice, and they notice this is Jacob, and they pause and respect and silence and recognize that uh, a great man's life has passed by, and he is now passing through. There's a lot going here. Can you picture that scene in your mind? The funeral procession making its way off into the wilderness as the credits for the end of the movie begin to roll, and we see the credits roll. This is, in a lot of ways, uh, the ending point of the story, at least in terms of what we're going to tell. But before we leave these stories behind, before we say goodbye to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob for good, I want us to perform one more thought exercise. I want us to speculate this morning on what Jacob might have been thinking as he realized that his life was drawing to a close. I hope that's not too dark for you this morning. I just know that as we, we take into account our own mortality, we, we tend to get very introspective. And I think Jacob was like that. He realized this was it. I think he looked back over the course of his life and all of his experiences. And I wonder if you can just take a few moments and imagine with me what he might have been thinking. Let's remind ourselves of the context. Jacob had lived his early years, the early years of his life, without any discernible commitment to his faith. Now, he knew that grandma and grandpa were, were, you know, devout people. Uh, He knew that mom and dad had made a commitment to God. Um, But as we read the stories we have really no sense that Jacob had made any direction or taken any initiative to make that faith something personal of his own. He certainly was not known as a a pious man when he was a young man. He was known as a shyster when he was a young man. He was a grifter when he was a young man. He was a cheat when he was a young man. But then he had a series of miraculous encounters, kind of in midlife, uh, we talked about some of them together, right? The dream in Bethel of, of the stairway to heaven. Some of the, the, the wrestling match encounter he had. Some of the things that happened when he was working for Laban. He had this series of miraculous encounters in the, in the middle portion of his life that caused him to reconsider his relationship with God. And he made a commitment to God. And, and he became a devout man. He became a different man than he was in his youth. And, and by the end of Jacob's life, the Bible is very clear. He's, he's still not perfect. Well, he's not perfect at all. But all evidence points to the fact that he is now a man of deep, deep faith in God. He had submitted himself to God's authority. He had dedicated his life to God's service. He was a very different man than the young cheat and liar that had made things so difficult for everybody that he encountered. He was a different man. And certainly from a perspective like that, this original heir to the promise must have had some thoughts on life. And I'm willing to bet that in his final moments, Jacob realized that sometimes we repeat the errors of our ancestors. Sometimes we make the same mistakes they did. I hope you've noticed how many times this family has repeated the same mistakes. Have you picked up on that through the weeks as we've read through the stories? Do you remember that out of fear, Abraham lied about his wife, Sarah? He said she was his sister. He actually did it on two different occasions. And then a generation later, his son Isaac told the exact same lie about his wife, Rebecca. Maybe you remember that Abraham also tried to help God out when he and his wife were struggling with infertility. And their solution was to use one of his wife's servants as kind of a surrogate mother. Two generations later, Jacob and his wife are dealing with infertility, the exact same problem. And they make the exact same mistake in terms of coming up with the exact same solution. You might remember, well, we've just mentioned it in the last couple of minutes. Isaac and Rebecca drove a wedge between their own children by playing favorites. They would not be invited to speak at a parenting seminar. (laughs) And a generation later, a generation later, Jacob did the very same thing with his own boys. He got the, 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 the short end of the stick in the family he grew up with and yet he repeated the same mistake when he was the dad. We could go on and on and on. This family had an uncanny ability to trip over the same hurdles again and again and again. And you know what? I would like to think that I'm better than that. I would like to think that I'm able to learn not only from my own mistakes, but just as well from the mistakes of those that have gone before me. I would like to think that. What we learn from history is we don't learn from history. I'm not. I'm not better than that. I have sinned countless times in my life, often without realizing it, but sometimes I knew exactly what I was doing and I did it anyhow. But you know what I've never ever done? You know what I've never, ever, ever done? I've never invented a sin. <laughs> Every sin I've committed is something that somebody else has done before me. I've never done anything truly original. Every blemish on my record is something that I've seen before or I've heard about before. And it's that way for every one of us. Listen to this church, to be a sinner is to be a copycat. I have people sometimes that will wanna come to me and and, and confess, and that's a good discipline. The Bible affirms that. Come and confess your sins one to another. It's part of the forgiveness process, That's, that's very good. What I've recognized is that oftentimes people are so weighed down by their sin and they have this sense that, oh, my goodness, what I've just done, Pastor, let me tell you, it's going to make God blush. He's never seen anything like this. (laughs) And so many times over the course of my ministry, I've had to tell somebody, let me begin by lifting that burden from your back. You have not impressed God today. <laughs> you have not given him something he's never seen before. I guarantee you the Lord is not going, Woo! never saw that coming. That's just not how sin works. To be a sinner is to be a copycat. When I was in undergraduate school as a music student, I was working on a project with a partner once. Uh, we had been studying commercial music and music for television and for film and things like that. And we had this big project that we were going to work on together uh, to, to compose and then record, using synthesizers and computers, record some sort of orchestral theme music that we thought might be befitting for the title sequence of an action movie. So on a particular day, uh, my, my, uh, my, my partner came over to my place because I had the computer, I had the synthesizers, had the home studio. This is all stuff that people do on their iPads today. But back in the 90s, this was cutting edge technology and it took a lot of gear, okay? Right? So she came over and we started early in the day working on uh, just kind of some original stuff, and we wanted to, to layer this together and make it sound like a, an orchestra was playing the title sequence of the latest action movie, right? And uh, we were, we we're having a great time doing this. We spent all day working on this. And I, I kind of remember how this went. Uh, the, the, the piece that we, we wrote started, we started it with just low brass, kind of a deep, mysterious low brass and we had this little it went bum 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 not a very good singer and we repeated it dum, bum 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 ba, dum. and then we brought in the drums to ba, don String. And we spent all day layering in the cymbals and the percussion and brought the brass in here and the transpositions there and the strings and we did this whole thing. We spent all day working on this and it's a very slow, arduous process. You have to program one part at a time into the synthesizer. You have to sequence and layer it in the, in the software of the computer and in those days that was a, a little Lengthy processing time, you know, so there were long breaks and you could just add a, a few notes at a time. But gradually, as the day went on, this music began to come to life and it sounded phenomenal. And then my roommate came home. He had been at work all day. and I heard him come in in the other room and he starts, and then he hears us because we're playing this music again and again. We weren't quite done. We were still going to layer a little bit, you know, have the, have the cymbals whoosh at the end or something like that. We were putting kind of the final touches on, on our music and, uh, and uh, he came in. He could hear it from the other room and he comes into the studio and he goes, Oh, cool. The Batman movie. <laughs> <laughs> and we looked at him and said, What? And he goes, "Well, he, he, the, the Batman movie. You guys going to watch that? I was, you know, The, the Batman movie. You, you going to watch that? We had rewritten that. The title sequence to Batman. Without, without realizing. So, really, you can, you can tell people this your pastor wrote the theme music to the Batman movies. He just didn't do it first. He just didn't do it first. I'm a terrible composer because when it comes to music, I've just never been good at coming up with original ideas. There's a lot of things I can do well with music, but composing is not one of them. Sin is the same thing. There's a lot of things I can do really well when it comes to sinning, but coming up with something new and original isn't one of them, because to be a sinner is to be a copcat. We have spent the last three months talking about those how those who are in Christ Jesus have inherited the promises that God made to Abraham. What I haven't mentioned in this entire series is the fact that the Bible says that all of us, whether we're in Christ Jesus or not, all of us have also inherited a sinful nature. We've inherited it from Adam. He was patient zero. The rest of us have merely contracted the virus that was passed down from him. And that's why we are so prone to just repeating the errors of our ancestors. And if that's the only thing that we could say about this, it would be a pretty discouraging story, wouldn't it? Let's pray and dismiss. But I believe that as Jacob considered the scope of his life, he also saw reason to hope. I believe that Jacob must have been able to see that sometimes we get a chance to make things right. Oh, it's true that sometimes we repeat the errors of our ancestors. But sometimes, sometimes we get a chance to make things right. Surely that was on Jacob's mind as he gathered all his sons to him to say his final words. His own father, Isaac, hadn't done that. Isaac tried to keep Jacob out of that important moment. Jacob wasn't a perfect dad, but when it mattered, he wanted the whole family together. He made things right that day. Speaking of keeping the family together, I'm sure that Jacob gave some thought to the time that he and his brother Esau were reconciled. The division between them, do you remember this story? It easily could have led to a literal war. Esau had an army with him when he came to meet Jacob, if you recall. But both of those boys, the the brothers, they decided to go above and beyond to make peace with each other. They had an opportunity to make things right, and they took it. And I'm sure it made Jacob proud to know that his own family was back together again, precisely because his son Joseph had made the same choice. Joseph could have lived with a heart full of bitter vengeance toward his brothers. But instead, he had forgiven them and he made peace. His dad must have been very, very proud that day, don't you think? Making things right. Did you know that that's God's specialty? I believe it's actually a good way of describing the mission of God in this world. To make things right. He's setting things right. And because of that, every follower of Jesus is meant to be a participant in God's mission to set things right. I want you to hear that again. If you're a Christian today, listen to this and know this. Following Jesus is not merely about stamping your ticket to heaven. It's about being God's agent in bringing the righteousness of heaven to earth. That's why we were taught to pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Those aren't just fancy words to repeat. That's proclaiming our role as agents in the mission of God. Sometimes we get a chance to set things right. And when we have that chance as followers of Jesus, we're supposed to take it. We started this morning by singing the Christmas carol, Joy to the World. We sing it often at Christmas, Um, But did you know it's not really a Christmas carol? It doesn't speak to the first coming of Jesus nearly as much as it speaks to the second coming of Jesus. On the screen, you'll see the words to the third verse. It says, no more let sins and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. Watch this. He comes to make his blessing flow far as the curse is found. As far as evil has had the opportunity to make things wrong, the mission of God is to come and set them right again. He comes to make his blessings flow. How far? As far as it needs to go. Just as far as the curse is found. This verse and this hymn, this Christmas carol, is about a promised day yet to come when the kingdom of God is fully ushered in. But our responsibility here and now is to prepare for that day. And that's why the missionary work of God's people isn't merely to make converts out of the unbelievers. The missionary work of God's people, as for instance, the prophet Amos would put it, is to let justice roll on like a river, like a never failing stream. Or as Moses put it, to love the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. Or as the wise King Lemuel said, to defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Or as James, the head of the church in Jerusalem said, the mission of God is to look after the orphans and the widows in their distress. Where we see things wrong, we put them right. That's what we do as followers of Jesus. Heirs of the promise recognize That wherever the gospel goes, we must be on the lookout for opportunities to make things right. Sometimes we get that chance. And when we have it, we have to take it. We have to take it. The other thing I'm convinced that must have been on Jacob's mind in his final days was the larger story that we've been tracking for these many months now, the promises that God had made to his grandfather Abraham all those years earlier. We talked about the promises in terms of five distinct things that God had promised Abraham. I'm just gonna remind you of those things. We remember that when God first spoke to Abraham, he said, I'm gonna give you a place I'm gonna give you a people. I'm gonna give you prestige among the nations. I'm gonna give you protection. And I'm gonna give you a purpose. He said, your purpose is gonna be, you are going to be the means by which I bless all nations on earth. That's what God had said to Abraham. And when God made those promises to Abraham, (laughs) Abraham was little more than a childless foreign refugee in a strange land far from home. Even by the time of Abraham's own death, he was uh, an owner of a small parcel of land, but it was really just for a family burial plot. He was still seen as an outsider. His family was small by the standards of ancient people. He had been successful in business, but you could hardly say that he had the acclaim of a, a great and famous name as God had promised. And the idea that he was somehow a blessing to every nation on earth, well, that was kind of a laughable stretch, even by the time of Grandpa Abraham's death. But for Jacob, on the other hand, think about his perspective. Think about how much more he had lived to see. Think about how much more he had experienced. I think we can see a lot more evidence of the promises taking place by the time that Jacob was ready to breathe his last. And I think Jacob could see it too. And I can't help but imagine that Jacob's final conclusion was that in the end, in the end, God's faithfulness is what matters. Jacob's lies, they could have easily cost him his life, but God's faithfulness watched over him for all his days. Jacob's impulsiveness could have easily wasted the family fortune, but God's faithfulness always provided for him. Jacob's foolishness could have easily torn his own family apart, but God's faithfulness put them all back together again. In the imperfection of our brokenness, (laughs) every one of us has the capacity to make a tremendous mess out of our lives. You don't have to say amen to that because I know I see you not. In our individual brokenness, I'm going to say it again, every one of us in this room has the ability to make a tremendous mess out of things. Am I right about that? But God's faithfulness sustains us. God's faithfulness sustains us. The Bible says even if we are faithless, still he remains faithful. Hmm. As we move to conclude today, we're just, I don't even have an end of the sermon today. I just want to give praise and honor and glory to God for his faithfulness today. Can you join me with that? Oh Lord, that we would live each day of our lives with the strength and the conviction that comes from a lifetime of testifying to God's faithfulness. A lifetime of testifying to the goodness and the faithfulness of God. Oh, that we would see with, with generational eyes, right? To recognize that God is always working in the lives of the heirs to the promises, whether we realize it or not, whether we see immediate evidence or not, whether we feel it or not God is faithful in the end it's only his faithfulness that matters it's not my skill it's not my ability it's not my talent in the end for me let me tell you about Dan today in the end when I breathe my last it won't amount to anything That I was a good preacher or a bad preacher. It won't amount to anything that I knew how to play the piano. Nothing that I accomplished will amount to anything. But only the faithfulness of God will matter through my life. Only as his faithfulness has been expressed through my testimony will anything matter. In the end, God's faithfulness is all that matters. I have nothing to add, to contribute out of my own strength, out of my own ability. I have nothing to give. I, I, am, I, I come into the presence of the Father with hands open because I have nothing. It's only His faithfulness that matters. Thank you. Thank you And that's why. as I say these last words, I'm going to ask the worship team to come back, because I think we're going to close in song today. But church, I want you to hear this. It doesn't matter if I'm rich or if I'm poor. It doesn't matter because God is faithful. It doesn't matter if I'm sick or if I'm well. It doesn't matter because God is faithful. It doesn't matter if I'm weak today or if I'm strong. It doesn't matter. Why? Say it with me. Because God is faithful. It doesn't matter if I've been mistreated by the world. My God is faithful. What did Jesus tell me? He said, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, because I have overcome the world. Praise take heart, he said to my, my, my children, to my, my sons, to my daughters. He said, take heart. I've overcome the world. It doesn't matter. Your heavenly father is faithful. Always, always. It doesn't matter if, if I've lost anything. It doesn't matter if in my foolish pride I've made a mess of things yet again. Cuz God is faithful. God is faithful. God is faithful. Thank you. Lord, we thank you today for your faithfulness. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your mercy. Yes, yes. Would you, Lord, burn in our hearts Reminders of your faithfulness. Come, Lord. Come, Lord. Would you burn in our hearts a passion for the mission of God to which you have called us? Would you help us, Lord, to be a faithful people because the God that we serve is faithful? Would you divorce us from any sense that says, oh, I can or I can't? Lord, none of those things matter. All that matters is that our God Faithful Lord, for those who are struggling today, for those who are hurt today, for those who are burdened today, would you show your faithfulness to them? Would you remind them of your faithfulness? Would you demonstrate your goodness today? For those, Lord, your children are tired. For those who came into this place today, tired, as, as the word puts it, sometimes weary of doing well, would you help us to rest in your, your presence, in the knowledge that our God is faithful? For all my life.